Well, hello, hello, hello. Welcome, everybody, to the Asking for a Friend podcast, season two, episode two. Um, I am your host and uh, lead pastor, Albert Benjamin Kemper II, and I am uh, standing in as host uh, for uh, my good friend, William Jacob Colley, today because he's, he's off spending some family time, and I'm with my wife, who's laughing at me at the way I introduced the uh, podcast. So why don't you say hey, hey to everyone, Lindsay? Hey, everyone. <laughs> such a such a wonderful host so far. <clears throat> um, glad that you're here. And so we Thank were. You. You're welcome. Uh, so we were talking, and we wanted to do this one since it's just the two of us um, sitting in our living room right now, um, having discussed some of these questions. We got into actually, by the way, great questions this week. So um, fantastic job, everybody who wrote in, who put it on Instagram, emailed in, uh, just a real solid set of questions. Um, so what we're gonna do is we wanted to shake things up a little bit. And uh, we're going to ask each other questions. So Lindsay's got some questions that she selected for me to answer. I've got some questions that I've selected for her to answer. Um, and who knows, we might just throw in some randos that neither of us know about. So uh, you ready to go? I am. Yes. All, all right. All right. <laughs> so, all right. Here's the first question. I love this uh, question. I thought it was really, it was really interesting. Um, the question is this. What do we do when depression sets and there's nothing to look forward to? Uh, goes on to say, uh, what if the only things helping you feel better or normal are destructive but a short fix? So uh, if I was going to um, say that perhaps a little bit differently, it's so what do you do when maybe you know that you're in the middle of a bout of depression, uh, but there's just nothing to look forward to? And then there's these little things that you can do that make you feel better for the moment, but they're probably destructive in a bunch of different ways. So, so what do you do when you find yourself in the middle of that um, kind of probably cyclical process where you just don't know what to do with it? Yeah, this is a, a loaded question, um, and you know it's it's difficult to answer without specifics. But I would say, um, when I work with depression, the the draw or the the pull with depression is that you want to do less than what you normally do. You want to stay in bed. You don't want to go to work. You don't want to hang out with your friends. Um, you don't even want to shower. And so when I work with students or with people that have depression, we, we, um, we work on just maintaining that schedule. So get up, even if it's later than normal, um, try and sleep less than what you want. Uh, meaning, appropriate amount of time but not 10 hours a day um I still go to the gym or if you can't make it to the gym at least go for a walk in the neighborhood or at least do something a little bit more physical so trying to stick to the daily activities and the daily routine can help um keep that depression from not getting quite as severe i see that so so then what about the person who um they have um, maybe these little vices, these little things that they're doing. Um, it gives this temporary sense of, of relief. Uh, and I guess one would be what, in your experience, what are some of those? Um, and then what would you say to do, or for the person who, maybe that's the only thing that makes them feel okay for the moment. Well, that's where I wish I had a little bit more specifics about what is um, the things that are making them feel better and how are they destructive? Because, Again, for some things, we work at just shaping that behavior slowly. So you want to stay in bed all day. Well, okay, that's not good for you in the long run, but we're going to shift that behavior slowly. So, you know, you, instead of sleeping 12 hours a day, you're going to sleep 10. 
Um, but then we have other behaviors that we're definitely going to address that are destructive, like drinking alcohol. Um, alcohol is a depressant. It can make your depression feel worse. Uh, and so we're going to definitely gonna address that sooner rather than later. Um, and I'm a behaviorist and, and kind of my therapeutic approach. So I'm a big, let's kind of what we take away, we have to replace. You can't just expect to take away a behavior, especially if it's one that's helping you feel better, if you're not going to replace it with something else. So um, whatever that behavior is that you're struggling with, and this doesn't even have to apply to depression, it can apply to literally everyone listening. Um, Whatever that behavior is that you're using as a coping skill, to slowly, as you take it away, replace it with something that's um, healthier. Um, and a lot of times having that accountability, those friends that are there with you can also help because they can check in and make sure that you um, are actually doing the things that you need to do. Yeah, one of the things that I remember you telling me was uh, when I think about this, there's there's a huge difference between um, destructive behaviors. Uh, you, you were saying this before, um, but... For the person who um, their coping mechanism is they're just getting blackout drunk, right? Mm-hmm. That's a highly destructive, like that's not going to end well. Mm-hmm. Um, the person who's cutting, that's a very destructive behavior, right? right? But at the same time, maybe you have someone who is, um, they are minimizing what's going on mm-hmm. and that's their coping mechanism. Because all these, all these avoidance behaviors are really coping mechanisms. And that mm-hmm. coping mechanism, there might be minimizing, but... At some points, coping mechanisms are good. You know, if, if it's finals week, perhaps, and you're a student and you are um, sifting through some stuff, sifting through some, you know, depression or some trauma that uh, has gone on and you're minimizing it, um, it's probably a good thing to minimize that during finals week. Now, don't stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are uh, doing some avoidance, and you've talked about this before, sometimes uh, initially when we um, kind of shut down and avoid the thing, uh, that's a way for us to um, over time process it because if we've experienced trauma, if we were to totally confront it all at the same time, it would it would make us virtually um, immobile. I mean, it would just really destroy us. And so we're able to um, in some ways avoid it. But the thing is, we don't want to stay there. We Any avoidance technique or coping mechanism that we use over the long term without actually confronting the thing ultimately becomes detrimental and destructive. Yes, I agree. And I think even healthy coping skills when be, and when in excess can also become destructive. So going to the gym is a great stress relief. But if you are going to the gym for an hour or two hours every day and you can't go a day without going to the gym, then I would argue that the gym is also an unhealthy coping skill at that point. Gotcha. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's helping you to not have to deal with the reality that you don't want to sit with. Correct. Interesting. Okay. All right. Good. That was. I like that. I like that. So. Uh, so, what do you got? Okay. So, I think. Um, what are healthy boundaries for opposite sex friendships within a marriage relationship? Mm, that's a good question. I would say, I'd probably answer that a couple of ways. One, I would change the question a little bit. Classic. I would probably change it to just what are the boundaries for um, opposite sex. Um, interactions, relationships, I wouldn't say friendships is the defining factor because uh, how does that look with someone at work? How does that look with someone who you've met at the gym? How does that, met, that mesh with someone who your spouse is friends with? I mean, all those are, you know, different types and sets of interactions. Um, what I would broadly say is um, 
people were made for interaction and connection. We were made to be in relationships with one another. Um, I think what happens is each person, what needs to happen is each person knowing themselves um, and having clear conversation uh, with their spouse needs to set up boundaries that are appropriate for them that aren't going to put them in a situation where they are going to be um, tempted to want to, um, in an unhealthy way, connect with someone of the opposite sex. So that's a very ambiguous yeah, thought. Yeah, a little... But let me tell you why it's ambiguous. Okay. Because... Uh, so this is a good example. Me and you were different, right? So I'm a pastor. You're a therapist. Mm -hmm. We both sit down and counsel people. We both sit down. People are going through an extraordinary mess, right? <clears throat> I will not give ongoing counseling to a girl because I think it's, it, is the, it, is, it creates a very unhealthy dynamic um, for me and something that I'm uncomfortable with. I will meet with, with someone, uh, if, if there's a girl who's going through something, and we've set these boundaries up. Um, I will meet once and kind of help to assess and connect to a next step, right? I'll connect to, we've got fantastic women's ministry, discipleship, leaders in our church. I mean, they, they kill the game with that, right? Um, but I'm not going to go and set up ongoing um, appointments to help someone who is of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. um, I rarely, in fact, I can maybe count on, on a hand the amount of times I've gone to um, a meal with someone of the opposite sex since we've been married. And if it ever it is, it's somebody that you know about and you've approved about and we've talked about. And there's almost oftentimes a very specific reason. Um, for you, you do counseling ongoing with men all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, that's a little bit specific but what we, what I have to do is be self-aware. What you have to do is be self-aware. And what we have to have together is conversation that brings clarity, that makes us both comfortable and removes any type of um, tendency towards connection. Does that make sense? It does. And when I'm doing therapy, we don't talk about me or myself. So sure. it's a one-sided relationship. I use the illustration with clients a lot of, if you think about a bullseye, and your relationship should be similar to that where the inner circle bullseye is the people that you talk to, that you share everything with. And then as you go farther out from the bullseye, it's good friends and then maybe acquaintances or people that you can hang out with, you know, in a group of people, but you're not that close to. Um, and I think within a marriage relationship, the people that are in that inner circle, that bullseye are your spouse, um, and then same-sex friends. I don't think it should be opposite-sex friends within that inner circle. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I'd say, and again, back to the level of um, it can be different for each person. It's um, what that inner circle looks like um, and what happens. And what, what I mean by that is uh, in dating, we, we've talked about this before, how in dating, um, praying with the person that you're dating with can be a very intimate thing for most people. Um, for me... It wasn't because I pray with everybody and not like, oh my gosh, I you know it was prayer, but like somebody come up at the end of the church and want to pray. So to, for me to pray with another person is not a specifically interpersonal, intimate thing. It is because we're talking to Jesus together. Um, but I think each person knowing themselves and having clear boundaries on what is and is not acceptable um, is really important. But I think that's a good way to think about it. Thanks. You're welcome. All right. So I've got a question for you. Uh, the question that I think is I think is one of the more difficult questions to answer, so I'm, I'm really excited to hear your answer about it, is how can I help a friend 
who insists that their anxiety is just a part of who they are, like a personality trait. So this is the person who the anxiety that they feel uh, is so deeply ingrained in who they are, it doesn't even feel like it's a thing. It feels like it's a personality. It's, oh, this person's bubbly, this person's anxious, this person's happy, this person's anxious. Um, So how do you help a friend who displays that? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, One, I would say that people are never completely free of anxiety. And people that have anxiety and generalized anxiety disorder, the actual diagnosis, you're never going to be completely rid of anxiety. Um, So sometimes people can get wrapped up in the identity of I'm an anxious person. And I've even met with people who decided they didn't want to continue to be in therapy because their identity was so wrapped up in I have anxiety. I don't know what life would be like without my anxiety or without my depression. But that doesn't mean that just because you have anxiety or you're more prone to being anxious that you can't change. Everybody can change. Um, Again, I'm a behavior analyst and I fully believe every behavior can be changed or minimized. And so just because you're an anxious person, that doesn't mean that you can't also work on reducing your anxious thoughts, identifying the stressors in your life that make you more anxious, um, identifying that how you think affects how you perceive interactions or the world and then either increases or decreases your anxiety. So you can be an anxious person, but that doesn't mean that that gives you the get out of jail free card to just be an anxious person the rest of your life without working on it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think on the spiritual end of this too, uh, there's a level of identity. It's if, if anxiety is just who I am, um, I would say that beyond anything else, beyond my um, gender, my race, my socioeconomic status, my job, um, I am a Christian. I My identity is Jesus. And I think that as long as Jesus is the primary thing that's defining our identity, everything is subject to his um, lordship, right? And so if Jesus is my primary identity, um, then it, it removes I am anxious. It's I am a Christian. I am a Jesus follower. My identity is Christ, and I'm a, a Christian who has a very strong struggle with anxiety and worry. So for the person that has this friend who has identity is anxious, I would say um, go read the book Boundaries. Uh, great book. Hmm. I recommend it a lot. But also know your limits of where and how you can help this friend. Because sometimes if you are the person that is <clears throat> listening to your friend and their anxiety, then maybe also you're helping perpetuate that problem because they're not realizing that they do need help. Yeah, yeah. So I would say for you as a friend to set those strong boundaries of, hey, you know what, this is, you've been struggling with this for a long time or you are constantly worrying about this. Maybe this isn't something you should talk to me about. Maybe it's something that you should talk to a therapist about. Yeah, and that's really easy to do. It's really easy to, as a friend, want to help and listen and hear and, and, and by default, enable them to continue to worry out loud and um instead of pushing them to actually do that they'll they'll go to your you as a friend as a therapist because it gives them a sense of release and processing i like it yeah 
things. Okay, so I'm going to go on and move on with you to a little bit of a heavier question, but I think an important one. Um, do people who commit suicide go to hell? It's always a topic that's never directly addressed. Mm. <laughs> Pull out the big guns for this one. Um, so let me qualify the answer before I give you the answer with why I think people don't often directly answer the question. I don't think it's because there's not a direct answer to the question, because I think there absolutely is, and I'll tell you what it is in a minute. But I think the fear in directly answering the question is that you're giving someone permission. What we don't want to do is say, um, because the answer to the question is this, is does committing suicide send somebody to hell? No. Unequivocally, no. There is almost no defensible New Testament argument that you could create that would substantiate that. Um, that would fly in the face of by grace through faith. That would mean that the last thing the person does, if it's sinful, so if you've got you know Billy Graham, who was one of the best Christians and evangelists in our modern day, uh, is driving down the road, and as he, as he <clears throat> drives, drives over the side of the cliff, and... Um, and screams out, you know, take him, takes the Lord's name in vain, right? Does that mean he goes to hell? No. Are you kidding me? Like, that's the most outrageous version of salvation and um, <laughs> by faith through all of my works would be the equivalent of that. Um, so the answer to that is no, but the fear is that is, is when you say uh, no, that suicide does not send someone to hell, uh, the fear is that, well, somebody might take that and use that as a way to run um, into it. The, the three options where people kind of get that from are one, um, because of that sin, it would send somebody to hell, which isn't true. Other people would argue that um, someone who really has the Holy Spirit living inside them would never do that, which I think we all know is not true. We know people who mm -hmm. love Jesus and have struggled deeply with depression who have made that decision. Um, but at the same time, in answering and saying, no, that doesn't send anybody to hell, I would also say this. It is murder. It is self-murder. It is you are going to leave people in the wake of your uh, existence if, if that happens, uh, the waste of, wake of your lack of existence. There's going to be a family. There's going to be incredible hurt, incredible devastation. Um, so, so that's the other side of it. That doesn't mean that it isn't sinful. That doesn't mean it isn't something that's very, very difficult for everyone who would be left behind. So if you're listening to this and that feels like a sense of permission for you, please call somebody right now, stop listening and get help because that is by no means permission. Yes, that's correct. There's, um, you can call the suicide hotline. Um, if you at FSU, at least if you call the main line after hours, you can speak to a therapist on call. Um, or you can also call the police. And if you're worried about a friend, you can call the police and ask them to do a welfare check where they just check on that person that you're concerned about. So little advertisement there. I like it. So speaking of advertisements, I'm going to light things up. Um, we're going to go a couple quick questions real quick. Number one is how can we, somebody wrote this saying, I don't know who, I don't know who would write this. How can we send Lindsay gift cards to Lululemon and other favorite stores? Oh, that was a great question. <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I wonder who would have sent that who, one. Props in. to that person. Yeah. They must really like you. Um, <laughs> anyways. Uh, so uh, real quick, what are um, some mental health issues that to look for that we don't categorize as mental health? So what are some, some mental health, not just specifically mental illness, but what are some mental health issues that we ought to be on the lookout for that we maybe don't attribute to that? 
Yeah, so we're going to go through the entire diagnostic manual uh, for <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, I, I I mentioned this in the podcast last week. I think stress is a big one um, that I find myself doing a lot of education on stress versus depression and anxiety hmm. uh, because when you line up the symptoms of stress and depression, they're almost identical. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so I think we minimize this, the weight that stress has in our lives. Um, I think another one that we often minimize or we just say, well, we're just trying to be healthy is um, body image concerns, weight. Yeah, Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, well, they're, you know, they're just, they're just trying to be healthy. They're going to the gym all the time, but, um, or, and this is for men and for women um, that both can struggle with this, but the, the drive to look good and to lose weight or to gain muscle I think is a big one um I think also one that's becoming more common is social anxiety yeah Um, yeah I see that yeah a lot of people struggle with social anxiety and they feel like they're the only ones they and oftentimes they think that they're more awkward or more anxious in public than what they look like to others but i think that's a big one too is the social anxiety piece yeah and that can be i know that can be late onset it could be something that somebody hasn't struggled with at all in their life and then they're you know in adulthood or young adulthood and all of a sudden they feel this overwhelming social anxiety and it's like who am i what is going on yes that's correct yeah so i I would say that those are some of the few that came to mind okay i like it i like it all right you got anything else for me Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. So um, there are two questions that I'm going to read off because they're similar. They're from two different people. But um, how do you live into your calling, like truly, wholly live into it? And then how can you be diligent in mundane work when you just want to be focused on the kingdom? So similar things of kind of how do you find a purpose in a job or a work or area in life that doesn't quite seem to be heading in the direction you want it to be in? Um, a bunch of ways. One is no time is wasted time. Know that whatever you're doing, um, at a, at a minimum, you are developing the ability to be diligent in what you find to be mundane. Um, I think that, uh, so I would, I guess I would answer that a couple of ways. One is I believe that every work done to the glory of Jesus is kingdom work. I don't think that there's a discrepancy between when or there's a separation uh, between uh, the level of spirituality when I'm preaching a sermon and the level of spirituality when I, on Monday, am filling out our order inventory worksheet on Excel spreadsheet for the meat company. Um, I think that both done for the purposes of glorification of Jesus are holy acts in and of themselves. And so I think that creates a new lens through which we view what we do when we're at work. Um, So I would say... Uh, if, if you want to be a great um, Christian and live out your calling at your workplace, um, point blank, don't suck at your job. Like, be incredible at it. Show up, kill it every time you're there. Make everyone who, who you work for want to give you a promotion, but not because you're seeking glory for yourself. Seek to help the people around you, um, and you will be amazed. And, and I say this often— um, most of the ministry that happens with me does not happen on stage. It happens either in meetings with people at church, and but more often than not, it happens um, somewhere in meet rooms, in different grocery stores and rural places and in offices across America. Um, I share my faith in more interpersonal conversations through the meat company than I do um, 
through the church. Now, I, I share a lot on stage, but in, just in one-on-one conversations, uh, it happens all the time. And so I would, I would, I would lean into and say, how can I fully focus on the kingdom of God, of, of doing kingdom work um, where I am right now? And if you want to lean wholly into that, uh, I'd say beyond that, this sounds so elementary, you should be plugged in. I mean, you need to be plugged in, whether it's our church or not, you need to be plugged into a local church. You need to be discipling. You need to uh, be in discipleship relationships where people are pouring into you. You need to be serving. Uh, You need to um, be... uh, Engaging with friends who don't know Jesus, you need to be worshiping together. You shoot, you need to be giving. I would ask every single person. Um, you can't wholly lean into the kingdom of God when Jesus said the main competitor for our heart is our money. Um, so I would say, hey, first step, let's 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 check our giving record. Now I say that I feel like I can say that with autonomy because we both know that giving at our church doesn't pay our bills. It's the meat company, which is the by far dominant payer of all of those things. Um, and so I'd say. Uh, there's a book that I would check out by a guy named Watchman Nee. It's an old book called The Normal Christian Life, where he talks about what the normal Christian life is, but the normal Christian life lived how it ought to be lived is actually a radical Christian life, but it ought to be normal. And I would, piggybacking off of that, I would argue mundane work may be mundane for you, but it may not be for the person that you're working for with, um, Prime examples, Delaney came and helped us with our kids tonight. And that might seem mundane, but it was an incredibly Dude, I love helpful, her. very helpful thing. And it was, yeah, it was, it was just, it was amazingly helpful. And for her, it was probably not a big deal. Yeah. But for us, it was a very big deal. Yeah. She just goes, oh my gosh, of course. And we're like, no, no, no. That was so helpful. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Oh. So anyways, hey, I hope this was helpful for you. Um, we're going to be back next week. Keep those questions coming. Um, we didn't get to all the ones, so we're, we're going to try to pick up a couple more next week. Um, but again, keep those questions flowing. Uh, we hope this is helpful for you. We'll see you on Sunday. Got a really exciting uh, sermon that's planned uh, and going to do some more digging into Jesus, mental health, the gospel, change my mind. Thanks, everyone.